Thank you all. We're ready to begin the first uh, formal panel. Uh, I'm Rick Herman, uh, director of the Mershon Center here at Ohio State. And my view, it's the best job on the campus because I get to do my own research and participate in these kinds of roles in all of my colleagues' uh, work. And I want to thank Peter Shane uh, for organizing this conference and allowing Mershon to have a, a role in it. And I really appreciate the chance to be here. My role was not to take up much of your time. What I would like to do is introduce the four panelists uh, this morning very briefly. Their full biographies are in the brochure and conference uh, literature, so I'm going to be very short so that I don't take their time up. Uh, first will be Martin Lebicki. He's senior management scientist at the RAND Corporation. He focuses on information technology. He's written several books on cyberspace, national security, and cyber war. Martin will be followed by Susan Brenner. She's the NCR Distinguished Professor of Law and Technology at the University of Dayton's Law School. She's also recently published two books with Oxford University Press on law in an era of smart technology and cyber threats, emerging fault lines of the nation states. Next will be Mark Young. He very recently, just uh, last month actually, became senior advisor and director for policy and plans at the U.S. Cyber Command. Previously, he was special counsel for defense intelligence for the permanent select committee on intelligence at the House of Representatives. And our fourth speaker this morning will be Jason Healy. He's executive director for Cyber Conflict Studies Association. He's also director for cyber conflict education at Delta Risk, which is a firm specializing in national, uh, national cyber policy. He also lectured at Georgetown University. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the podium over to Martin. Okay. In the beginning, there was ground conflict, the ground domain of warfare. When people learned to sail in boats, there was the naval domain of warfare. And when people learned to fly, we ended up with the air domain of warfare. About a half a century ago, people learned how to put things in orbit, and then we got the space domain of warfare. 25 years ago, more or less speaking, we learned how to network folks together, and now we have the cyber domain of warfare. This is a domain that transcends all the other forms of warfare. It's the new high ground of warfare. It is the one domain that binds them all and in the ether rules them. Since this is the first of April, I think I'm going to be the first to say, this is my April Fool's joke for the day, which is to say, I do not believe that cyber is a warfighting domain. Now, I'm going to make that statement not in terms of some platonic essences in caves of the wall and what is the real nature of that. I leave that up to college sophomores at ungodly hours of the night to debate these philosophical topics. But what I want to talk about is the problem with calling cyberspace a warfighting domain is that the term domain has a lot of what are called connotations. It has a lot of baggage that comes with it. And if you start thinking about cyberspace as a warfighting domain, you end up hauling the baggage along with you. And a lot of that baggage is not only bad for you and your chances of actually making the flight on time, but also leads to bad thinking in terms of being able to understand cyberspace as, in fact, a place where, where conflict takes place. The, um, let me, let's start off with your basic phenomena. Why do people even worry about this? People worry about cyberspace as a warfighting domain because we have computers and we have networks and our operations, whether they're civilian or military, have begun, 
have grown dependent on these computers and networks. Well, these computers and networks are not perfect. In theory, they're supposed to be instructed by their owner operators. In practice, they tend to be instructed sometimes by people that we don't like and don't have our best interests in heart. Now, as it turns out, how you go about instructing these systems and networks varies greatly. Okay? There are many ways you can do it. You can hire somebody to do it. They're called spies or agents. You can parachute into one of these computer networks and get on the keyboard yourself. You can get into the supply chain. In fact, the greatest act of cyber war was supposedly when, we sold, when the Russians were sold some chip that blew up their natural gas pipelines. Uh, you can overwhelm a radio frequency signal. But as it turns out, the easiest way of getting into somebody else's computer is over the Internet. Hence cyberspace, and hence cyberspace is a domain of war. Of course, what we have done at this point is not only put the horse before the cart, we've really put the horse trail before the cart because we've started to all of a sudden mistake the locus of where things take place. That is to say, in the instructions and misinstructions of the system with the route by which they got into it. Okay, well, let's go back and start thinking about cyberspace as a domain of conflict. Now, you'll get people who talk to the subject on that level, and they're going to say, well, cyberspace is, of course, different. I'm not too naive. Cyberspace is man-made domain. And everybody nods sagely. And then they go on and talk about cyberspace as a warfighting domain, as if the difference between man-made and natural were of no more importance than the difference between polyester and cotton. And in this sense, they've really missed the wrong point. The point is not that cyberspace is a man-made domain, because, in fact, the urban warfare, if we're going to go back to Victorian London, is a man-made domain, right? The point is that cyberspace is malleable. Cyberspace can be changed, often is changed. And more to the point, cyberspace is changed by its defenders. Now, it is true that if you're going to build a network, the guys called Microsoft are probably going to come into it, and probably Cisco, and you're not going to have a whole lot of choice about some of the big names. But in fact, there are a great many choices you have when you set up your network on your connectivity, on how accessible your data is, on what you do about backup, on how you look for anomalies, both using uh, software and using people, on how you authenticate users, on particularly which products you buy, on how you maintain your software, on how you do see your security settings. And that's, by the way, for you and me. Now, if you're the Department of Defense, you actually have a lot more control. You have a lot more control on how you design your crypto equipment, because, in fact, DOD orders its crypto equipment. The Department of Defense, uh, offense, phew, boy. The Department of Defense has its own domain, the .mil domain. It has its own servers. It has its own DNS servers in particular. It has its own authentication servers. The Department of Defense also has access to the source code of Microsoft Windows, so if they want to tweak it, they can certainly do that. The Department of Defense also establishes its own air gap network from the Secure Internet Protocol Routing Network, or SIPRNet, to JWIX, which is a network for the intelligence community, to its airborne network. There are uh, networking devices such as JTIDs, and don't ask me what the acronym stands for, which allows the Department of Defense to set up its airborne networks. They have their own satellites. In other words, it's not a God-given domain in the sense that it's a given. And it's not a, even a man-driven domain in the sense of urban warfare. It's a domain that the Department of Defense has a great deal of discretion about how to, how to design. And oh, by the way, 
most of the other folks, like the Russians and the Chinese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, also have a great deal of discretion about how they design the domain. It's as if you were to play chess and you could design your own board, and you could design your own rules that other people had to go figure out. It would actually make you probably a better chess player. Now, the other thing about cyberspace's domain is that it's, in fact, multiple media. It's not just this is great cyberspace that two, two sides are trying to dominate. As I mentioned before, there's your cyberspace, if you're Department of Defense. It's their cyberspace, if it's some foreign equivalent of the Department of Defense. And there's that great glop somewhere in between. And guess what? Pretty much if you're talking about conflict, that great glop in between is really tertiary. It's the third thing you worry about. You worry about protecting your own network. You worry about trying to keep them from protecting their network. And in the middle, maybe, you might play with a broad internet, but it's not going to do you a whole lot of military good, precisely because militaries tend to be on their own domains. Okay? Now, let's think a little about the, 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 the prospect of defense. The most important question you can ask about defense is not where the zeros and ones and the bits and bytes go. It's, why do I need this information? How good is it for me and how good is it for the other side? How dependent am I on information flows? How dependent am I on the fact that they're correct? How dependent am I on the prospect that they're timely? In other words, the first thing you do for defensive information warfare, for defensive cyber warfare, is to understand yourself and understand your own use of information. That doesn't sound like a warfare function, is it? It's more almost psychological function. Next thing you kind of do is engineering. I had listed all these criteria on how you build networks. What choices do you want to make? How do you want to implement these choices? How do you know you've implemented these choices correctly? Okay? Um, engineering is a very, very important role in designing networks. That's trivial. Uh, safety engineering. One of the chief rules of safety engineering in the age of computers is never let software break your hardware. If you, in fact, have, a have successfully implemented that rule, you have a lot less to worry about from cyber war than if you haven't. Okay? Then you have to worry about personnel administration. Then you have to worry about systems administration. Finally, when you've done all the blocking and tackling, then you can have your cyber warriors going around swimming in the network, sort of defending it. But notice that that stands at the end of a long chain of processes, every one of which, but the very last one, sounds like an act of warfare, sounds like an act of conflict in the domain. Okay, well, maybe defense isn't the best place to think about it. Well, let's think about offense. What does it take to do, to do harm to somebody else's computer? Well, you've got to do a lot of exploration. In fact, you have to do so much exploration and so much understanding of what you're looking at that no other field of human combat is intelligence so integral a part of warfare. In fact, intelligence can be said to be 98% of, of, of warfare, up to the point where you can have a more than perfectly adequate cyber offense by having a bunch of civilians go around scoping the other network as spies, and then at the end you say, Major, can you come here and press this button, please? Well, all of a sudden, the whole notion of conflict as a war domain, even in the offense, doesn't look like other domains. Doesn't look like it has, in fact, many of the connotations of these other domains. And, if, and this is a really long, long discussion I don't have really the time for. If you understood cyber offense correctly, you would understand it was a large series of one-offs in a niche network whereas none of, the other can, um, none of the other domains can be so described. 
So what do you get with all these connotations? You get all these wonderful concepts that come over from other domains like superiority. We want to be superior in cyberspace. We want to dominate the medium. Uh, whose medium exactly did you want to dominate? Did you want to dominate your own medium? Yeah, that you should be, be able to do. Do you want to dominate the other guy's medium when he can simply disconnect himself by pulling the right kind of plug? That may be a bridge too far. Do you want to dominate the entire internet? Well, that's nice. Why did you want to dominate the entire internet again? You have high ground. You have key terrain. You have all these concepts. When if you take a look at them in the context of cyber war, dissolve in the thin air. Don't make a great deal of sense. And yet people persist in thinking of cyberspace that way. I want to sort of end up with a sort of a comment about how we've chosen to organize ourselves. Um, consider two domains of warfare. The first one has been active for 70 years, seven zero years. Um, it was crucial in the victory in, war, in one of the most important battles of World War II. It's a domain in which nations have spent billions of dollars on equipment, have very highly trained cadres of thousands of folks. Okay, that's one domain. Second domain, people have been thinking about it for about 20 years. We have never seen its use in combat so far as anybody knows. There are very few people trained in it and almost less equipment in that domain, right? So you've got the two domains, the one that works, the one that we're thinking may possibly work. In the U.S. military, one of the domains is headed by a one-star. In some services, in some services in 06. And the other domain is headed by a four-star. Well, there's no guesses as to which domain is headed by the one-star and which domain is headed by the four-star. The four-stars and the O6s, and they say in military terminology, had the domain of, of basically electronic warfare, of radio frequency spectrum. They complain they don't get a lot of respect. Now, I can understand that based on the next comparison. On the other hand, we have a four-star running U.S. Cyber Command, a form of warfare that nobody has ever shown is, in fact, particularly integral to how you fight in wars. This is what comes because we have chosen to put the moniker of domain on cyber warfare, and we have not chosen to put the moniker of domain on the RF spectrum. Words matter in this business. And, uh, it's and, and it's unfortunate when the words start getting in the way of understanding. I'm Susan Brenner. I am obviously a professor of law at the University of Dayton, which is not far from here. And what I'm going to talk about is what I call threat morphing in cyberspace. And what I'm really going to do is a very, very light treatment of threat morphing in cyberspace. Um, before I get into that, I started, my background in this, I started working in the area of cyber crimes in 1997. I spent a lot of years working in cyber crimes moved into the phenomenon that has been discussed, may or may not have manifested itself, known as cyber terrorism, and then moved into cyber warfare because my thesis here is very simple, is going to be that our current approach to threats, the threats that societies deal with, is based on a territorial model of governance, which means that we divide threats basically into inside threats and outside threats. And as I'm going to try to demonstrate today, that begins to break down in cyberspace because it is a non-spatial whatever it is. 
a non-spatial domain, a non-spatial experience, a non-spatial overlay on physical reality. It erodes the distinctions between those categories. Um, starting with threats, we need to define threats. I'm not talking about cyber war, just. I'm talking about the generalized category of threats societies have to deal with if they are going to survive and thrive. And those threats can be divided into two categories, which I'll get to in a minute. This is a picture of Hadrian's Wall, which, which the Romans erected in the northern part of Britain to keep out the bad guys, the people that posed a threat. This is an, uh, is an example of a territorial approach to dealing with threats. You define a border. You keep one kind of bad guys, the foreign bad guys, the outside bad guys, on the other side of the border, and that helps you to maintain stability within your society. Nation states, um, because we have nation state governance, we've had for a long time, governance before that also based to a great extent on territoriality, we define threats into two categories, internal and external. Hadrian's Wall was really concerned with dealing with external threats. External threats, perhaps the oldest type of threats, the outsiders, the others, are attacking us. External threats uh, we refer to as war, which used to be a pretty straightforward process. Um, concept of war was very simple. The bad guys came over Hadrian's Wall, the bad guys came across the border, attacked your country. You had a struggle, essentially a zero-sum struggle, one side would prevail, the other side would not. It was a struggle between the big boys. The players in warfare today are the nation states. People don't wage war. Now the other category is internal. Societies cannot survive and thrive unless they can maintain in internal order. Jeffrey Hunker talked about Dickensian London, which was not an area that, an, an environment that was known for establishing order. Well, you saw in the 19th century, prior to the 19th century, we did not have formalized law enforcement agencies. Uh, law enforcement, as Jeffrey said, was basically a matter of individuals, groups, collectives, an ad hoc process. 19th century London, the rise of urban crime, people migrating to the cities, that model began to break down. And in London, um, Sir Robert Peel invented the first modern police force, a quasi-military designated force that dealt with internal threats, crime, and that migrated here and it's migrated around the world. The result being that we as civilians assume no responsibility whatsoever for ensuring order in society. The military takes care of the outside threats, law enforcement takes care of the inside threats. Now, internal, I have a second category. So there's crime and there's terrorism. In terms of talking about what the categories are, as I said, war is an attack, has always been, has been, an attack that comes from outside, nation state versus nation state. The, the goal there, it's a struggle between sovereigns, the sovereign goals, um, conquest, strategic interests. Crime is inside, has been inside, civilian on civilian. Um, the drivers for crime, <laughs> Most cybercrime, much of cybercrime is financial. A few years ago, some researchers at the Naval Postgraduate School did a study of technology and its use or abuse throughout the centuries, and they concluded that throughout the centuries, quote, the bad guys have been among the first to adopt new technologies. Well, what we're seeing here is that the same motives 
that drive crime in the real world, profit, lots of financial crimes, identity theft, um, extracting funds from banks, things like that, extortion, and what I call passion, which is kind of the default category that drives stalking, harassment, um, various crimes like that. What we're seeing is what we saw starting well into the 90s was that the bad guys began realizing that this technology offered them significant advantages in carrying out various types of crimes. Okay, crime inside, crime as such, and the other category, terrorism, which used to be um, an inside crime. Classic example, Timothy McVeigh blowing up the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1995, a domestic terrorist. Timothy McVeigh did not blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building for profit. He did not blow it up for traditional motives of passion. He blew it up in some weird, distorted, ideological principles. So terrorism, the way we have treated terrorism is it's a type of crime. As I tell my students, terrorists do, have done, what criminals have done. They destroy property, damage property, kill people, injure people. The difference lies in the motivation. Motivation being uh, the federal uh, cyber terrorism statute or state cyber terrorism statutes in this country say the motive is to coerce or intimidate a civilian population. So we have treated it, at least until 9-11, we defaulted to the theory that we would treat it as a type of crime because the underlying conduct, the harm, looked like crime. That has begun to break down. Now, inside and outside. You need to be able to tell which category they fall into. Is this an attack? Is this crime? Is this terrorism? I'm just going to focus on crime. It's easier. Is this crime? Is this war? Where is it coming from? Um, Jeffrey used the example of the convenience store robbery. Well, that's pretty easy. Crime, traditionally, everything happens here. Um, TV shows focusing on crime scene analysis. There's a crime scene. All the events happen here. Traditional crime, in order to be able to victimize somebody, to kill them, to rob them, to defraud them, I had to be face to face. So everything happened in the same location. It was internal, which makes it a lot easier to deal with because you have a crime scene, you have traces, there's a lot of consequences to that. Work came from outside. Convenience story robberies don't come from outside. War comes from outside. So, Pearl Harbor. Now, there are other markers. Pearl Harbor. One of the markers in Pearl Harbor is that we knew that it was coming from outside, our intelligence. Other markers are that the evolved um, process of war, they use implements, they wear weapons that have identifiers. One of the most distinctive indicators of war, certainly in the modern era, is the tools. The tools that Japan used to wage war in World War II, the tools that Germany used to wage war in World War II, the tools that are being used to wage whatever's going on in Libya are not tools that are available to civilians. So the markers, the tools, the coming from outside. Um, in terms of dealing with those, the first question on any attack, any kind of event, any threat, is, what is it? Is it crime? Is it, is it crime? I put terrorism as a subset. Is it crime? Is it war? 
That leads us into, once we figure out what it is, once we attribute it, once we put it in the proper category, once we put it in the proper box, this is crime, this is a convenience store robbery, this is war. We have a bifurcated response process. Law enforcement deals with crime and used to deal with terrorism. That began to break down a bit with 9-11. Uh, law enforcement deals with crime, the military deals with war, fighting. We to figure out what it is, law enforcement, military. The markers, as I say, the point of attack origin, the point of attack occurrence, and the motive. Convenience store robbery, point of attack origin and occurrence are the same. The motive is financial. Um, for war, the point of attack origin is, has been from outside, occurrence inside. The motive doesn't look like profit or traditional passion. Now, let's talk about threat more thing. A little bit, um, we have a presentation on this later in terms of what happened to Estonia, in Estonia in 2007. Uh, authorities moved a statue of a Russian soldier to a suburb. They were expecting pushback from the Russian-speaking minority in Estonia. Because Estonia is a very sophisticated country, they monitored chat rooms, they realized that cyber attacks were being planned. They started on April 27th, they continued sporadically to, to April 8th or 9th. And they were significant, sustained attacks, denial of service attacks, bombarding websites in Estonia with so much traffic, they became unavailable and were essentially shut down. All right, what is it? It's coming from outside. Okay. That used to signal war. Well, there's one problem there. It's coming from outside, but the other market's not there. Denial of service attacks are used by cyber criminals all the time. Denial of service attacks are not something that is specific to monopolized by nation states. Okay, it's coming from outside, but this is a tool cyber criminals could use. Can we track it to a nation state? If we can track it to a nation state, then it would be war if using cyber signals is war. It's not bombs and planes. Question. At one point, the Estonian authorities believed that it was launched by Russia. If it had been launched by Russia, that gets us closer to attributing it as war. Nation state, outside, eh, tools that are also available to civilians, but we got two markers. Cybercrime. Could it just be hackers? One problem with that, they do use denial of service attacks and they do launch attacks from across borders. But one problem with that is there's no apparent motive. What's the profit? They're not extorting the sites they're shutting down for money. Passion, not the traditional. Terrorism, could be cyber terrorism. It could be an ideologically driven attack launched by civilians, most of whom are located outside of Estonia as revenge for the removal of the statue. But there, it's not so clear. It's not nearly as clear as it used to be. It's not the convenience store robbery. Anonymous, Jeffrey talked about WikiLeaks. Anonymous, 2010, um, I assume you know who Anonymous is. It's a loosely knit network of activists, activists, cyber activists. Um, December 2010, among other things, they launched uh, denial, distributed denial of service attacks on Amazon, PayPal, MasterCard as revenge for their not supporting WikiLeaks, okay? What is that? The attacks came from 
at least to some extent, came from outside the country on these targets. Um, motive is not profit. Motive is not the traditional motive. Anonymous is a group of civilians. So we could say that that was simply maybe cyber terrorism, cyber crime, cyber terrorism. Uh, Operation Bradical uh, 2011 has not happened to my knowledge, but this year um, Anonymous threatened to ruin the officials involved in Bradley Manning's detention at Quantico as retaliation for what they see as illegal, improper treatment of him. Well, now that's an interesting thought. Anonymous is a group of civilians. And they were to launch a denial of service attack on Quantico on an entity, an agency of our government that is, in effect, an attack on our government. What's that? Traditionally, government's not really victims of crime. Government's victims of terrorism, and we could call that terrorism. One of the other possibilities here I'm simply going to throw out is the possibility that in the, in the world, in the physical world, warfare has been, however we define it, has been monopolized by nation states because of the weapons needed to wage war. It's not true online, not necessarily true online. So question being whether we have to modify our categories. Maybe the categories we develop for the physical world, ah, crime, terrorism, war, that's neat, that's tidy. We know what they are, we know who responds. Maybe those are not the best way to approach dealing with what we encounter in cyberspace. Maybe we need to be more flexible in conceptualizing those threats. Um, they said the bifurcated response, the law enforcement, the military, the morphing threats, the effectiveness of that response tends to erode, as I often say. You have, a, you have an attack. Estonia. Who do we call? Do we call law enforcement? Do we call the military? What is it? Got to be one or the other. In this country, it's really got to be one, of, one or the other. So we have to decide. But it does, it's not clear. That can take time to decide what precisely we're dealing with. Um, which leads to the possibility we may need to modify our threat categories. We might need to expand them. We might need to modify our response categories. We have in this country a statute, the Posse Comitatus Act, that prevents the military from participating in routine law enforcement activities. Some think that perhaps given the ambiguity and complexity of cyber threats, we should change that. We should allow some, ease that partition, allow some interaction between the two, which I'm not necessarily comfortable with. But I do think we need to talk about flexible responses, talk about our conceptualization of the threats, be more innovative in dealing with these issues. And that's me. Good morning. I've, uh, I do want to put out a disclaimer that, uh, as you heard in the introduction, I've only been at Cyber Command for a few weeks now. So what you'll hear, these are my opinions primarily from having overseen uh, the federal government's cybersecurity efforts from my previous position on the House Intelligence Committee. So uh, that did give me a great deal of insight into what's happening at um, Homeland Security and DOD and the intelligence community, so I've kind of framed my remarks um, to, to those organizations. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the operational relationships and what's motivating the federal government to mature those relationships. 
Um, we, you've heard a number of speakers touch on this today. Um, we do have somewhat of a lack of situational awareness on all of our networks. Um, the the uh, private sector has trouble finding out who and what is on their networks, just like the DOD has trouble on the .mil and DHS on the .gov. Um, I do believe that the Defense Department has a better idea of what's going on in their networks because it's a smaller set uh, of the larger network, um, and it's been accelerated. The, the, uh, some of the programs that DOD has has been accelerated by WikiLeaks and uh, Operation Buckshot Yankee, if any folks are uh, familiar with that. DHS is improving uh, their, their situational awareness on the .gov with uh, programs like Einstein 2 and 3. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of intellectual property that's stolen off of these uh, government and private networks. Um, it, the, the costs, in some estimations, runs into the billions. So that lack of situational awareness is helping us mature these operational relationships and also to establish the roles and responsibilities. Who's supposed to do what? And I, I don't necessarily mean the military does .mil, the Department of Homeland Security does .gov, and the private sector does .com. I, I mean a much more granular uh, roles and responsibilities assignment. Uh, I'll use the um, example of the uh, memorandum of agreement between uh, DOD and, and the Department of Homeland Security, um, helping those bureaucracies be much more cooperative uh, uh, in cybersecurity. The other uh, roles and responsibilities we've, we've already talked about this morning, what is the role of the private sector? The, the information sharing and analysis centers, the ISACs, uh, is one model. Um, and uh, as we heard from, uh, from Jeffrey this morning, working marginally well. Um, and we've got the enduring security framework in the, in the Pentagon, uh, another, uh, I would submit to you, a more successful uh, interaction with the private sector. Um, sharing those roles and responsibilities as to uh, how should dynamic defense uh, be implemented across all of the federal government and the private sector. But the other thing that's motivating these operational relationships is what I call a learning cycle, that there's an awful lot of um, solutions and processes that are being developed, and these things have to be tested and modeled and simulated and wargamed, if you will. Um, the example, one example being Cyberstorm 3, uh, where you had seven cabinet-level departments, the intelligence community, law enforcement, White House staff, um, even, if the, even if the game, um, uh, the, the most successful part of the game, I think, is having all of those folks in the same room uh, establishing those, that trust and uh, those relationships between those entities. Clearly, the point is securing all of our networks is, is a team sport. So let's talk about the internal federal government uh, operational relationships. Um, it, it, the, the dynamics of network defense is, are such that um, there's no way that one government entity can do it all. So these operational relationships are, are absolutely essential. So in, uh, in fiscal year, for fiscal year 2012, the Department of Defense in, is investing over $38 billion for information technology. For specific cybersecurity efforts, it comes to about um, uh, 3.2 billion, and over at Homeland Security, they've got about 936 million. Uh, the 3.2 billion for DoD is a 2% increase. We've, we talked a little bit this morning about the downward pressure on the budget. Uh, it should be um, clear that with a 2% increase, that especially in, in light of those bu budget pressures, that the Department of Defense clearly understands how important this issue is, and so does DHS. 12% increase from previous years uh, for cybersecurity efforts. Let's talk about the benefits of that relationship between DOD and DHS. Uh, 
with those numbers in mind, clearly DHS recognizes the benefits of partnering with DOD. Um, the exchange of personnel, exchange of equipment, um, ex expertise, and facilities is, uh, it's actually a good thing, I think, for the country. Um, the sharing of actor, active cyber defenses um, to, to protect um, DHS assets as well. Uh, this, the, the MOA that I referred to earlier puts a joint coordinate, coordination element up at the National Security Agency. Um, this, is a, this is a good thing to improve the synchronization of operational planning. We talked about threat assessments a little bit this morning. To make those threat assessments better and a little bit more uh, cooperative. And of course, the intelligence support offered by NSA to uh, DOD and to DHS is important. I really believe that if I'm saying it's a team sport, that this, the DHS-DOD relationship is a, an illustration of an expanding whole of government effort. We can talk about how important uh, whole of government efforts are in, in defending networks, but this is, this is a, a great first step, um, and it's really illustrative of the benefits of, of joining together. Um, and from a philosophical standpoint, I think I, and I, I don't know if the American citizens feel this way, but I really believe that DOD has an obligation to help DHS. Uh, it, it's not the Department of Defense for only military networks, it's the part, Department of Defense, and we put an awful lot of money into the, the national security apparatus to protect the country. Um, it's an interesting bifurcation that we have uh, with authorities being what they are. Um, I think already DHS has benefited from um, the, the relationship with uh, DOD. Einstein III uh, using military technologies, including that active defense that I mentioned before, um, to secure DHS's government networks, uh, a real benefit there. It also adds to the protection of privacy and civil liberties, very important. Now, those are the benefits. The liabilities of that relationship, well, DHS, compare the, the resource between the resources of the two organizations that I just mentioned. Um, DHS has far fewer cybersecurity professionals uh, with different clearance levels. Uh, so, so information sharing is challenging, not impossible, but it's, it's tough. And of course, most DOD, most, I'm sorry, most non-DOD organizations are not as well trained at all levels in uh, the details of operational planning. Uh, th there may be some duplication uh, between the cybersecurity efforts at Homeland Security and DOD, although if you ask me, I think that's a, a good thing. Uh, and there's a cultural difference between Homeland Security and, uh, and defense. Um, and you heard me talk about the difference, the disparity in their resources. Now, to those operational relationships between Homeland Security and Defense, I'll throw in more formally the intelligence community. Um, you heard uh, Martin talk about the, the importance of intelligence in, in uh, cyber warfare. Um, no, other, no other warfare, he said, is, is as reliant on uh, intelligence as is uh, activities on uh, cyber uh, defense. Um, the, the important thing uh, about that relationship of adding the intelligence community into that is now Cyber Command can leverage the technical capabilities of NSA, which in my opinion, by far, the most technically advanced uh, intelligence agency that we have in the country. And let's not forget either that 80% of what Cyber Command is supposed to do is defensive in nature. It's, it's, a lot, um, it's a lot more dramatic to talk about offensive cyber operations, uh, but in the context of what day-to-day -day the command does, it's all about defensive uh, activities, keeping folks from stealing our intellectual property and, uh, and uh, changing data on our networks. Um, the, um, 
there's an example uh, I mentioned earlier, Buckshot Yankee, of, of where NSA was able to provide a capability within a number of hours to mitigate a particular threat. And, and you can and read about that, um, the, the success of Operation Buckshot Yankee as well. I mentioned uh, with the DOD-DHS relationship that it enlarges that whole of government effort, and I believe by adding the intelligence community into that mix, you're, doing, you're enlarging it even greater. So we're getting closer to that whole of government approach, which I think is, is very important. And let's not underestimate the benefits of leveraging the resident skill of uh, NSA and intelligence community analysts. Um, the intelligence community has a global reach and they can provide information to the government uh, that can defend a lot of networks. And let me just read from a Congressional Research Service report. Terrorist organizations exploit the Internet medium to raise awareness for their cause, to spread propaganda, and to inspire potential operatives across, across the globe. Websites operated by terrorist groups contain graphic images of supposed successful terrorist attacks, lists and biographies of uh, celebrated martyrs and provide forums for discussing ideology and methodology. So the intelligence community is a, uh, an essential element that has to be in this mix, this whole of government um, that we're talking about. The other thing too is that active defense that I've said is so important uses uh, sensors and software and signatures that are derived from intelligence to detect and stop uh, malicious code before it spreads. And of course, we use um, some of that active defense that because that you can't protect at the boundary 100%, we also look inside our own networks to make sure that nothing has gotten by. Now, there are some liabilities to including the intelligence community in that re operational relationship as well. Any government system, some of which I've already described, will uh, really um, get some of the um, privacy advocates uh, up in arms, um, but really when you look at what the private sector has done to provide for the security of these networks, uh, it, it's insufficient. The, the market, in my opinion, has really failed to provide the level and speed of protection uh, that we need. Uh, there's the idea that there's a lack of transparency by introducing Cyber Command and NSA into, uh, into the mix. I, I, I personally don't believe that. Um, I think that particularly at, at the National Security Agency there is a culture of compliance um, that, that pervades the whole organization. I'll, I'll, I'll quote uh, someone later on, 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 that, on that concept. But the other liability, similar to what's happening with DHS and DOD, is, well, there's an intelligence community culture, and it may clash at times with the culture of the Defense Department and with Homeland Security. There's, there's one operational relationship before I leave the, the federal government that I wanted to touch on, and that's the uh, relationship between Congress and the executive branch. Let's not forget that Congress is the source of legal authority. They're the source of the all-important funding to do cybersecurity activities. And they're a guarantor of privacy and civil liberties. I, I believe that the executive branch does a remarkable job of overseeing itself when it comes to things like private, privacy and civil liberties. But the Congress provides another layer of that, which is absolutely essential. So I, I won't go into a lot of detail about that. I'm happy to discuss it offline. But um, that's an important operational relationship that we can't forget. Now, um, those are the internal relationships. Let's talk about the external relationships, the, the public-private sector. I talked about the, the billions of dollars that are being stolen off of military networks and private sector networks um, every day. Um, it's including information that has been used in the development of weapon systems from uh, the Department of Defense. 
So uh, I think DOD has reached out to the private sector and done a couple pi pilot programs, um, and now there's the Enduring Security Framework, which has been um, remarkably successful getting senior executives from uh, defense industrial-based companies to, to discuss their risks, um, discuss their vulnerabilities, and for us to share information back and forth. Uh, it's a very, it's a very uh, good program. Um, I'm surprised that the private sector hasn't been more active in uh, providing security for their own networks. Um, but you can see, when you're driven by a profit motive, uh, that's a different model than, uh, say, the national security sector. So if you're a uh, chief executive officer and you're looking at the cost of providing additional security versus the profit that that's going to gain you, and if one outweighs the other, then you know what? I'll continue to lose the data because it's going to cost me more to stop the flood uh, than it is to develop my own solution. Um, but understand that, uh, let's talk about the private sector antivirus companies, the McAfee's of the world, that every day they see about 5,000 uh, new types of malware. And it really takes them a long time to identify what those malwares, uh, identify that malware, and then develop mitigation strategies and products to push out to, to their customers. In the meantime, other at 5,000 a day, these things keep coming in, so there's got to be a much faster cycle. Um, and of course, the, they don't identify the most serious ones, the, the, the zero-day attacks that still reside uh, uh, on different networks. And um, I think that's, where, again, where the intelligence community is very helpful. The benefits of the public-private partnerships that, that we talked about earlier, uh, it's a great bridge for classified information. Uh, Jeffrey discussed some of the other, the, uh, other benefits, but it also helps to identify uh, best practices. Um, sometimes the government's arguing with the private sector about the way to do things, and the other times it's the other way around, and there's a good sharing of information there. Um, I, I do have in the back of my mind the thought that if, if the Department of Defense, through the Enduring Security Framework and Active Defense, has developed such great processes and products, then why shouldn't those, these are taxpayer dollars that have paid for this, why shouldn't these things be migrated to Homeland Security and the dot-com to protect those things as well? Um, there's, a, there's a number of articles out there that advocate for that, too. Now, the, the liabilities of that public-private partnership um, are, are also, well, we, we heard uh, Jeffrey discuss a number of those. Um, one of the things that concerns me is that even if the current ISAC model, uh, for example, is insufficient, what's the alternative? I, I, I've seen a lot of folks who have, uh, rightfully so, perhaps criticized the the ISAC model and the public-private partnerships happening across the federal government with the private sector, but what's the alternative? And, and, and that's a factor. Now, um, running out of time, I just wanted to make clear that there's a number of things that I would have liked to have talked about in this forum, uh, but time precludes that. One of the, the most important one is the supply chain threat. Uh, because most of our uh, software, hardware, and maintenance of both of those items are now contracted overseas, we don't really have a good, good control over what's on hardware and software that we buy, whether it's in the defense sector or in the intelligence sector. Um, rogue code, backdoors, kill switches could be written into these things, and it would be difficult for us to know that. The other thing I've only touched on briefly, but I would really like to spend a lot more time talking about the civil liberties and privacy uh, considerations. Given the wild, wild west nature of the networks, I would submit to you that NSA is probably the only organization that's not on your computer. And um, I believe, like I've said earlier, that no one is better trained or better equipped to ensure that, that, that your civil liberties and privacy are protected um, and make sure that the nation is protected at the same time. I, I think it's, it's perfectly legitimate to demand both security and the guarantee of privacy and civil liberties. 
Uh, and finally, the national cybersecurity awareness. Um, I think we need a national campaign for, for that awareness. Every, the folk, and of course, I'm preaching to the choir. The folks in this room, you guys get it, but there's a number of folks out there who don't. Um, and I think that's a problem. The American people really have to know and understand what's really happening on their networks. And uh, they, they need to be educated, and they have to understand the risks. And with that, I look forward to your questions. Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Um, professors, fellow speakers, budding law students, um, future lawyers of America. Um, I am totally hopped up on caffeine right now, so <laughs> thank you pro for providing that. And frankly, I was a little short of sleep last night. I, I stayed up thinking about how I might defend America against a zombie attack if that ever happened, and that, and that kept me from uh, falling asleep for a couple hours. But in case that happens, I'm ready for cyber threats or zombie threats. Um, but today we're going to be talking about cyber. And Actually, uh, my comments uh, dovetail very, very nicely with, with um, what you've heard this morning and, and particularly um, Susan's. What you've seen, I've developed um, with my co-author, Hannah Pitts, um, here in the third row, uh, particularly through, um, through our work with Cyber Conflict Studies Association. And what we're going to be looking at is um, environmental or other norms to look at. Uh, when we're approaching the, the cybersecurity. And here's where it really fits in well with, with the comments from Susan. Um, when we've looked at issues of cybersecurity, there have been three traditional approaches that we've, that we've tended to come at. Um, we've tended to come at from a technical approach. So here we say, well, cybersecurity is a problem. Um, we should have a new protocol or we should rewrite uh, an RFC, or we should invent new hardware or software. Um, a very technical way to approach it. This is the way that we've really come through a lot of the first uh, 15 or 20 years of cybersecurity, of saying, well, we should have IPsec or IPv6. Um, I also tend to think of this as a very West Coast approach to cybersecurity, because it's a very Silicon Valley approach. It's a very Redmond approach. <laughs> Go Microsoft. Um, uh, to looking at, at cybersecurity. Um, but as Susan pointed out, we also have other traditional models of, of, of how to tackle these problems of cybersecurity. Um, and one of those is a criminal model. Um, and so saying cybercrime is, is a problem um, that's, that has, or cybersecurity is a criminal problem um, because we have evil hackers or um, cyber criminals or, or even cyber terrorists that are trying to do things against us and, and therefore we should train better prosecutors, pass new laws, um, uh, you know, improve Electronic, Crime, Electronic Crimes Privacy Act um, or Computer Fraud and Abuse Act or the D Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, get people to sign up to the EU Cybercrime Convention. And a lot of that is saying this is, this is a criminal problem and we approach it through law enforcement and similar issues. We also heard, well, it also, we can also tackle these issues of cybersecurity as a warfare problem. Um, and so just like Susan talked about, they can be external. We can see these issues that come at. And each one of these different approach, of these traditional approaches, has a different answer to what kind of norms should we come at? Uh, how, should we, how should we approach to solving these problems? Who should be in control? If it's a technical approach, then it's generally going to be the geeks that are in charge. If it's a criminal approach, it's going to be the cops and the prosecutors. If it's warfare, then it's going to be departments of defense uh, and uniformed military officers. 
So um, with another one of my co-authors, Greg Rattray, um, we've published um, some on this uh, for the Center of New American Security, and we have a uh, forthcoming paper uh, with CNAS and also the um, Cyber Conflict Studies Association. Uh, and by the way, it hasn't been pointed out, but um, on, particularly on the cyber warfare model, be very, very cautious if you're talking about it as a cyber warfare model. Because um, in, in Washington, D.C., um, I mean, if we're at war, we get to stab people. Um, so if, if, if you're in a conversation where people are using that term of cyber war, um, it's been bandied about for many, many, many things from, uh, from wedge page defacements to um, things that are much better understood in, in one of the other areas. And I'm not trying to glorify um, violence. But again, warfare, if you're at the White House or Department of Defense, has a very specific term, and we tend not to be uh, use that strict definition of the term when we talk about it. Now, all of these um, traditional models, they, they overlap, um, but so far they haven't really helped us to solve the problems. Many of the problems we're facing right now are the same problems we faced 15 years ago. Um, and, and you can see some of the, those issues that are, that are laid out there. Um, out, offense is still outpacing defense. Uh, we're still seeing cross-border uh, attacks with impunity um, and really a lack of, of serious attention to the problem. So we'd like to look at four newer approaches. If, if none of these three traditional approaches have yet solved the problem, either singularly or together, what other approaches can we try and do? If, they, if they're defeating uh, the approaches that, that Susan talked about, it's not quite crime, it's not quite warfare, how else can we try and approach this? What other norms can we look at? What other lenses can we use to come at this? So the work uh, that I'm co-authoring with Greg Rattray is looking at these four areas. Public health. Um, I know Microsoft has been looking a lot of, uh, about this area. And how can we use the lessons of public health in measurement and in incident response and hygiene to look at this? Uh, irregular warfare. I'm not saying that things that are happening in cyberspace are necessarily in a regular war. But if I were the Department of Defense, I would want to use an irregular warfare model um, to look at how we could change the geography of the battle space, how we could um, take away sanctuaries from the adversary, um, because that kind of lens works very well compared to, to, um, to what we've been doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Three, national responsibility. How can we try and reestablish state-to-state sovereignty um, and state-to-state -state symmetry in this area? And last, the one that, that our paper will be about and the rest of the comments, on the environmental model. So what's particularly interesting, I think, from a legal perspective, and, and that's the way that we'll, the rest of the comments are going to go, is there are a number of cases, uh, some of them environmental but not, but not all, that help set some very interesting new lenses, some new norms that we might try and approach some of this cybersecurity issues for. And, and three are listed there. So, so the trail smelter case, uh, just, just curious, out of the law students, I mean, how many people are familiar with, with trail smelter? <laughs> yeah, all right. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, so it goes back to the, to the early days of, of the 20th century, um, and, and the case extended in, in, into the mid-20th century, and it was a, uh, an ore smelter that was in Canada, and the fumes from this plant were going across the, the U.S.-Canadian border into Washington State, um, and the United States made a complaint, and there was an international arbitration panel that came out and said, yes, Canada is responsible and they must pay 
um, there, was, there were actual damages that were assessed based on this cross-border emissions that was causing harm in the United States. So it, it was laying out this obligation for states to control this cross-border harm, and it, and it laid down penalties. So I think this is a very, very interesting model if you can come up with a legal theory um, that cyberspace is equivalent to an, to an environment and that, that cross-border emissions, such as botnet attacks, for example, um, are similar enough, you may be able to come up with a very interesting uh, existing norm. Corfu Channel. Uh, th this is not out of the environmental. This, this is more um, national security, but again, has a very, very similar um, tone to it. 1946, um, some Royal Navy ships were sailing through the Corfu Channel um, near Albania. Uh, that channel had been mined and caused damage to the Royal Navy ships. Um, and it came out, uh, it got referred to the, to the ICJ, um, and that was a quote, quote there, that every state's obligation not to allow, allow knowingly its territory to be used for acts contrary to the rights of other states. So, in short, if a state knows about a danger, it, it has to mitigate the consequences or at least notify other states. So again, very similar to the, to this, um, to, to the trail smelter case. And last, one that I wanted to bring up in this, the Stockholm Declaration, that really in a way locked in that trail smelter case. Um, it was a um, UN conference on human environment in 1972, um, and, and you can see the quote there, it was responsibility to not cause damage to the environment of other states or of areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, which might include, for example, the broad ocean area. So that states are responsible for cross-border harm. So out of each of the um, out of each of these, and, there, and there's a few more, but in the interest of time, we're not really di diving into each of these. Um, it seems that these may be directly applicable to, to reducing the cross-border harm um, of network attacks. So, for example, this is um, uh, the 25%, according to Arbor Networks, uh, which did a survey of of internet providers. Uh, some are very small ISPs, some are the tier one of the very, very largest net network providers in the world. Um, and if you don't know, if you're interested in doing research on this, many companies will come out with internet threat reports. Microsoft does an excellent one, Symantec uh, started with the very, very, some of the very, very first ones in, in the late 90s. Arbor Networks, much more concerned with, with the main network providers, for example, than, than what Microsoft might, might come out with. And they, one of the questions they asked was to these network providers, do you monitor for attacks that are passing through your system that are crossbound or outbound that are leaving your networks? And 25% said, no, we don't even monitor for attacks that might be, that are, that are crossing or leaving our networks. Of those that did, 50% said, we, you know, we monitor it, but we don't care. If there's an attack, we'll, we'll see it but we'll just let it pass right through our networks. So again, if you're looking at um, these legal norms, you know, again, that's what companies are doing for, the, for this Arbor network. But you, there's, there's certainly legal theory, I'm not a lawyer, to be made that we, the United States, might have to look at our companies and say, no, we, we need to look at a duty of care, and whether that's responsibility or liability or, or something else, I'll, I'll leave to you future lawyers of America. Um, 
and start looking at how we might use, use these national norms. Uh, the United States is consistently at the top of the charts for how much malicious software we host here, how many of our computers are, are par part of botnets or botnet command and control networks. If we're not number one, we're number one or number two, and we've consistently been at that place for a very, very long time. The convenient, of excuse, convenient excuse of, well, we invented the internet, we have the most hosts, um, doesn't really make sense anymore, especially as we're seeing China and Russia, which are certainly um, adding more and more hosts, um, at least according to Sophos, one of the um, uh, antivirus vendors, has noticed that their percentage of these hosts is going down. So how might we use this for international engagement? The international engagement we've been doing so far has tended to be in the traditional models, getting countries to sign up to the EU Cybercrime Convention. Um, just recently we've started looking at how we can use the norms of warfare in this new area. For example, um, you'll be hearing from Paul Nicholas, he's been involved in the East-West Institute and saying, all right, how can we apply, um, you know, look at Geneva Conventions or other, other of the, the, the warfare norms to the, uh, to conflict in cyberspace. Um, the, the commander of U.S. Cyber Command, General Alexander, has said the laws of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, does apply to this new area. But I think there, there's great possibilities in trying to use the, these new norms, for example, from environmentalism um, and looking at, at how we might approach these areas. So what might success look like? And I put Montreal because of the Montreal Convention. The Montreal Convention is what, what said, hey, let's get rid of uh, CFCs. We have a hole in the ozone layer. These things are dangerous. There's no valid purpose for them, such as botnets. I mean, there's, there's not really a legitimate First Amendment purpose for, for, for botnets. And the nations of the world came together, and, and it's considered one of the great successes of international law to say, let's just get rid of these things. Let's, let's just make a law and, and, and be done with it. Um, so again, I, I see some lawyers out there going, gah, gah, gah. but uh, we'll let that get to the questions. But again, so there are models of trying to approach this from other ways. I think the, using the norms of cybersecurity and, and the three traditional approaches have not worked very well for us. We need to continue doing each of those, of the, of the technical and the crime and the warfare, because each is very valid for their own sphere. But I really encourage everyone here, especially the new law students, start taking um, uh, the norms and the ideas from whatever area you're coming in with. Um, from dinner last night, I was sitting with uh, Tegan and Jasmine, both coming from science, um, science backgrounds. Take those tools from whatever it was that you did before to law school or for how you grow up. We need that cross-disciplinary ideas to come in and help us. Because I'll tell you, approaching this from a technical problem, a criminal problem, a warfare problem, has not been enough to really get us through this. Thank you. Thank all of our speakers and now open the floor. Uh, I think as in the previous uh, session after Jeffrey spoke, if you'll come down and ask your question in the microphone and address it to any or all of the panel. Hello, hello, tasting? Yeah, good. Uh, um, uh, Jason, uh, I'll give you a second to get back, but uh, very provocative uh, paper. Um, the I wonder if you could uh, extend the analogy to a, a policy uh, discussion uh, in the area of, of the environment when uh, people rec recognize the externalities involved in that. They, mm -hmm. they approached it through a regulatory model. They said, 
it, there'll be a permissible levels of exposure for uh, effluents uh, into the into the environment. Um, what's the analogy to that in the in, in, in this world? We we just say the U.S. should reduce uh, the amount of internet emissions that we uh, we generate, and if so, how would you how would you put something like that into place? Uh, I, I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. I mean, it's it's very measurable. I mean, we have generally good senses of of where the botnets are and, and which countries host the most of these. Um, uh, in one sense, I think it's even more measurable than a lot of who's putting out CFCs or, or, or carbon. Um, this isn't that complex an environment when it comes to me measuring some of these, some of these things. Um, some of the ways that I've thought about this, and, and not all of these are going to make it into this paper, but, but we will be publishing on this, um, I would love to get ITU or World Bank or some other organization to, to one, just, just you don't have, norms don't have to be legal norms. Um, we could start with naming and shaming, you know, or um, awards for the, com the, the country that has the lowest density of internet hosts to botnets, um, to which countries, are, uh, which developing countries are adding the hosts at the fastest rate, but at the cleanest rate. So as you're seeing Africa wire up, I mean, I would love to have Bono give out an award to say, great, you, you have clean food, clean water, clean internet, um, and make this part of the sustainability. I mean, most of what we might want to achieve out of a secure internet, we could get by out of having a sustainable internet. Um, but you know what? A lot more people are going to care about a sustainable internet than a secure one. Um, so that's one way. Two, um, I put Montreal up here as, as a success um, because it's generally, it's generally worked and, and all of us say, oh, good, you know, you know ozone hole is bad. Um, the model that I actually really like was, was Copenhagen. I mean, in Copenhagen, there was a goal, 2%. I mean, 2 degrees Celsius, and we want to keep warming underneath that. And everybody came to that table, um, theoretically, of saying, hey, we, you know, we've got 2%, I mean, 2 degrees that we might, might want to get to. Corporations could sit down and say, what might we do? Politicians, which, you know, they try and compete with each other in the world to have the lowest carbon emissions. Um, uh, people say, you know what, I know that I need to use the recycling bin. I should turn, turn the heat down so I'm using less carbon. They know their carbon footprint. Um, and everyone comes to those environmental norms knowing that. Um, and so I would love to say let's get to zero <laughs> on botnets. And we might never get to zero. But if we all know we've got our individual responsibilities, whether that's, um, whether that's companies, whether that's ISPs, um, and we've all got small steps that we can take. Um, I was driving uh, towards GWU in D.C. Uh, last week, and I saw some chucklehead, happened to be in a pickup truck, throw a cup out his window. And I was thinking, who does that, you jerk? You know, nobody does that. And, and if people driving a pickup truck, I mean, please, please don't take that and, and any anti-pickup truckness out of me. Um, but, I mean, who does that anymore? I mean, we've established the norm that you don't litter. Um, and I would love to start seeing us get those norms uh, into this area. So, Greg Nojain, Center for Democracy and Technology. Mark, did I hear correctly that you, you said that NSA or DOD would be well positioned to protect civil liberties online? I did, absolutely. Would you square that with the terrorist surveillance program so I can knock it down in the later panel today? 
Well, you win the award for the most awkward question. Um, the, the, the terrorism surveillance program was a very small effort um, at the agency, and I, I can't quote you the number of people that were involved, um, but the, the apparatus that exists that, that really wanted to see the, the legal decisions coming out of DOJ concerning TSP, um, I think you would be very pleased if you knew the internal uh, vetting that that program went through and the guarantees uh, that, and the, the, um, the real scrutiny that it got within the agency and external to the agency. So that's what I'm talking about, that process. I, I'm not saying that mistakes won't be made, but I am saying that's why I chose my words very carefully. It's a culture of compliance. I want to know when you tell me to do a job, I want to know how it squares with the law and with the executive branch and DOD regulation. And the processes are in place to do that. So that, I guess that's how it squares, that whether you agree or disagree with the outcome of that process, the fact is there is an enormously rigorous process to examine those issues, specifically for concern about privacy and civil liberties issues. This one's actually for Martin. Um, uh, I, I, I take very uh, seriously your, your, uh, your uh, argument that, that cyber is not a domain, and I certainly agree with you that in Washington, uh, uh, designations have a great deal of, of, uh, of importance, and whether you're an assistant secretary or an undersecretary matters far more than what you actually do. Um, on the other hand, I take it you wouldn't dispute that this cyber realm, I won't call it domain out of deference, is one in which conflict um, occurs either between individuals or between non-state actors, as Susan demonstrated, or, or potentially between state actors because there are valuable things there to attack and therefore to defend. So if it isn't a domain, uh, as you say, but it is an area of conflict, even after we get through all of the engineering, um, uh, what is it? and how do we address the fact that, uh, unless your argument is that the engineering can eliminate all the conflict potential, which I think would be too strong, but if that's your argument. It's rather heroic, yeah, go on. Okay, so if, that's, if, that, if, it, if the engineering can't eliminate all of the conflict, all of the dispute, all of the challenges, uh, however you want to characterize them, then what's the right answer for uh, how we characterize it and how we should uh, uh, seek to bind together existing or perhaps new governmental structures or private sector structures to address it? Well, let me say a few things about that. Um, the United States and other entities are, have conflict for the minds of the rest of the world, okay? But we don't regard headspace as a domain or whatever that is because we've cho chosen not to call it that way. We have also chosen not to call the RF spectrum, which I re referenced to a domain, even though Within, con within kinetic wars, there is conflict over who can get whose signals in through that medium. So just because you have conflict there, we have a conscious choice about whether to call it a domain or not. Conversely, how would I characterize it? I would characterize it as basically as, as an effort to induce error in other folks. 
and thinking about all the other ways that errors are induced, some deliberately and not other deliberately. And that would put cyber war, so to speak, much closer to, say, safety engineering and security engineering. And in many ways, I like the environmental, people trying to pollute your medium. There's a reference to sort of a clean medium. I think those analogies are interesting. I think the public health analogy is interesting, although there is no sort of conscious entity on the other side. So I'm basically saying there's, there's a choice of analogies, and we have chosen to use one of them, and have chosen not to use similar analogies for comparable enterprises. And Paul, if I could, to, to follow up on that, one of the, we, we've, we've, heard to, we've heard the uh, reasons why cyberspace should not be called a domain or considered domain. Um, th there's, a, there's a corollary to that that says there is a big benefit to doing that as well. Um, there's a particular structure within the large uh, service, armed service apparatus that by designating as a domain, it kind of, um, it brings some structure to an otherwise structureless environment. All, all the things that Martin said um, are, are true, but the, the conclusion about that it's not a domain, calling it that does give you the advantages of applying traditional structures in organizing, training, and equipping uh, for, the, for the military um, that failing to call it a domain uh, leaves you without. But that does beg the question about whether those are the right structures. I see the high sign here. Uh, I understand there will be a 15-minute break. Right. Peter, maybe yes, you should give so, logistic instructions here. Right, the logistical instructions. So we have a domain of food. <laughs> um, and uh, right outside the door, there are stacks of, lunch, of box lunches um, for everybody here. So we want to invite everybody to go as quickly as possible to secure your lunch, return here, and in 15 minutes um, we'll have the lunchtime keynote. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Rick and the panelists for doing such a provocative and good job. <laughs>